Occupy a Job on Wall Street is an autobiographical novel about New York City and the aughts, centering around a protagonist who is mentored by three sociopaths. The author has more than 15 years of experience on Wall Street bracketing the same time period. While everything that follows is an accurate description of the world he witnessed, names and locations have been changed to protect people's identities. Episode 35, Cocaine Cowboys. Drugs aren't a complicated subject on Wall Street because it's a binary decision. You're either a cocaine guy or you're not. Now, I've personally tried every drug under the sun that didn't involve sticking myself with a needle. I grew up in a town so far away from civilization that our hardcore drug of choice ended up being acid. This is because it was expensive and dangerous to ship most drugs all the way out there, but a dealer could just soak a book's pages with DMT and send it through the mail. I always did feel bad cutting up old copies of American Psycho into quarter-inch squares, but it'd keep us high for a year, so say la vie. I eventually settled on marijuana as my drug of choice, and have since been vindicated, I guess, since nowadays Carl's Jr. is even adding it to hamburgers. The point is, because there was nothing else to do where I grew up, I got into drugs much earlier than most people. Ironically, this also meant I was over them by the time I arrived on Wall Street. But my friends in the business? My friends loved drugs. And cocaine? They felt 110% on cocaine. Sure, Bernie Madoff bought so much cocaine the dealers called their office building the North Pole, but one of his traders did even more coke than him, picked up two girls from flash dancers, and left them handcuffed to a radiator in his apartment on a Tuesday morning. He was taking down orders on his Palm Pilot in a cab on the way to the office before he remembered and had to turn around to wake them up and let them go. A further disclaimer before I get into the story. While I personally didn't have that much interest in cocaine, I loved it when my friends did coke. And I loved them when they were at their 110% best, roaring down the highway of life with nothing but road in front of them. I assign any early departures by these people to alcohol, not other drugs. On to our story. Anyone in New York back in 2006 will recall it as the winter of snowstorms. The record was broken recently, but before that, you have to go back to 1947 to find a comparable snowfall. So there's two feet of snow on the ground, and I'm rolling with a crew that's coked up to the gills and after mischief. The first protagonist of this episode was a hedge fund guy we'll call Kang. As you can tell from his name, he was an Asian guy. And on a whim, he asks a broker from Lehman to get us tickets to a concert at Madison Square Garden for a Korean R&B singer called Rain. Kang worked at a big fund called SAC, so his Lehman sales guy jumped into action and got a block of 20 seats up the front, and in no time, we're surrounded by hot little Korean groupies and the whole lot of them are doing key bumps and swallowing vitamin cues while singing along to music none of us had ever heard before or ever will again. It was 2006, these were diehard people, and bank expense accounts were unlimited and unaccountable. Every time the beer guy would come by, a random sales trader would take down the whole tray. The vendor would protest that it's a two-drink maximum, and we'd just throw money at him and give out drinks to everyone in a ten-seat direction. So toward the end of the concert, I get up to go to the bathroom. I walk into one of the stalls, and the hedge fund guy, Kang, has his assistant trader trussed up like a turkey, and he's pounding the poor guy in the ass, whooping like a circus clown. While I'm standing there in shock, someone pulls down my pants. 
I turn around and there's a huge black guy standing behind me. I don't know what medieval playhouse I've walked into, but I'm terrified. I reach down to pull my jeans back up and smash my head into something and fall over onto the disgusting bathroom floor. The black guy now fully takes in the scene in front of him, realizing he's pants the wrong person as a joke and knows there's no way he's not going to jail in this situation, so just takes off out the door. Kang hasn't looked up from his assistant's ass the entire time, so I clean up the gash on my head as best I can at the sink and go back out to the concert. I tell the brokers what I've seen, and even as high as they are, no one wants to see the sack guys ever again. So we agree to ditch their clients, and a lot of us do a runner, taking ten or so of the Korean girls with us. We jump into the cars that Lehman has waiting for us outside and shoot up to the Empire Hotel, chatting away merrily to the Korean girls who don't speak a word of English, but no doubt think it's great fun to be escaping their domineering parents with a bunch of round eyes wearing suits and me bleeding all over the place. Having seen enough depravity for a normal person's lifetime, while they rent a hotel room, I abandon ship and head home to clean up. The next morning, we're all chatting away on AOL, and the consensus opinion is that hanging at a hotel room is actually more fun than going to most bars in the city, so this becomes sort of a regular thing for my group. Each night, one broker from a different bank would book a hotel suite in Midtown, and we'd get our night started there. People just came and went as they pleased. A sort of informal conspiracy was built around this. So people knew which hotel room to come to. A trader would always put the room under the name of Bob McKay. Now I should add here that no one remembered who Bob McKay was. It was just an expired Discover card that someone had come across and never given back to the owner. See, back then, hotels would take down your deposit by physically swiping a credit card to take an imprint of it using paper sheets. That's right. Paper. As long as you checked out and gave them cash or a real credit card at the end of the day, it was that easy to book a hotel under a fake name. Now, you know, and I know, this story is going to come to an ugly end, so I'm going to revisit a bunch of the funnier hotel incidents on in a future podcast and try to bring this episode to a swift conclusion. The best way to set it up is to compare what happened to a boiled frog. The boiling frog fable is based on a premise that if an animal is put suddenly into boiling water, it will jump out. But if the frog is put in tepid water, which is then brought to a boil slowly, it will not perceive the danger and will eventually be cooked to death. If you'd walked into one of Bob McKay's parties for the first time, you'd immediately see five ways you could get arrested. So, like the black guy from earlier in the story, you just turn around and walk out of there. But there were 40 of these functions slowly getting out of hand, and no one had the good sense to say no, until the authorities said it for us. In any case, I walk into the Four Seasons and immediately something is amiss. Normally you'd walk into a suite and see at least a couple of friendly faces, but tonight Bob McKay has taken down the entire 38th floor, and I'm greeted by a couple of angry hookers stubbing out their cigarettes on the curtains. A senior sales trader from Bear Stearns is getting the lunch knocked out of her in the main bedroom while some interns from her firm peek through the door. People are pulling the art off the wall and jumping on it. There are traders trying to break down the bathroom doors to get in on whatever they think they're missing inside. I run into a bunch of my peers from the Rain concert. They've pulled off the Wall Street party of a generation, and yet there's no sense of jubilation in their faces. Lines of cocaine only seem to bring into stark realization that this is a part of the business that will be gone forever after tonight. 
and they're not even going to enjoy their swan song. I stay with them for a sad beer as the chaos mounts around us, and then beeline for the door as a fidelity trader begins flinging champagne bottles off the terrace. The next day, the Four Seasons has the NYPD calling every bank on the street, chasing up compensation for the damage that's been done. No one will own up to being there. However, anyone who used a credit card at the previous 39 parties potentially has their head on the block. It'll be their jobs and their marriage if any of this gets out. Now, one of my key life skills is being a prick and pretending I'm a lawyer for guys named Bob. So I gathered cash from as many people as possible, settled with the Four Seasons for 9000 and everyone seemed happy with that. The... End. Episode 36 of Occupy a Job on Wall Street will be out soon. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes.